0: For part two of our childhood sci-fi experience, I sat down with Geoff and Graham from At The Flicks to get their view on the genre. Just start us off then, um, what got you guys into sci-fi? So, Graham, do you want to go first?
1: Oh, well, I am well into sci-fi. I'm probably one of the only people who's been abused because of their love of sci-fi. I once got abused by a religious nutcase on a train who told me to stop reading sci-fi and read the Bible because there was more excitement in that than in... Uh, and at the time, oh. I, I was re- I was reading Asimov, and there's a great, uh, the Foundation series, and in the first book, there's a huge twist that comes about a quarter of the way in, and I went, <gasps> and this nutcase started laying into me about...
2: Bitten. Was this in Northern Ireland?
1: Yeah, of course oh, it was in Northern Ireland. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I've been into sci-fi since I was about seven or eight years of age. I grew up in a very technical family. You know, my father's an engineer. My, my One of my brothers um, was a scientist. The other is an aero engineer. So, and I worked in computers for 42 years. So, yeah, very technical family, very science-y at home. Uh, and science fiction was obviously our weapon of choice.
0: Quite a mix there with um, the professions, but very interesting. Yeah.
2: So, so, what was it then? Books? Films or TV? Comics.
0: That's where well, I first got into it.
2: different, don't
1: you? <laughs> of course I have to be different. Yeah, it started with comics, reading sort of uh, the X-Men back in the uh, mid-60s, and then I got into books and, and TV, of course. And then,
0: Did obviously, they have when, I, when
1: you were young? Uh, shut <laughs> up. Jesus there yes, they just invented it. Papyrus. Yeah, okay, it was fine. great. It was a big move forward from the clay tablets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, um, uh, and then when I was old enough to go to the, the the pictures on my own, as we used to say back in the, those days, yeah, I went and saw all sorts of great sci-fi stuff. Yeah. Brilliant.
0: So. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and Jeff, what would you say got you into sci-fi when you were younger?
2: Well, I think one, one thing Graham hasn't picked up on, and I think it's true for the both of us. Growing up in the 1960s, it was the decade of science fiction. You had the Mercury space program, but mainly you had the Apollo space program that ended in 1969 with them landing on the moon. So everything, whether you turned on the news, you know, I think, what was it, Graeme, you'll know, but is it Christmas 68?
1: Christmas '68 was Apollo 8 yeah. going
2: around the moon. See, so that whole Christmas you're watching news bulletins, are tracking the, the spaceship going around another world, um, culminating in, in what happened in July '69. Um, so, you had that, but you had TV as well. You had things like, you know, primetime TV, then, was things like The Champions, The Avengers. Probably shows you've never heard of rich because you're far too young
1: <laughs> and not the Aven- and not the Avengers you're thinking of no so
2: no, so no the, the decent Avengers, not that uh, marvel nonsense um yes, but we put With- that to bed in an earlier podcast so <laughs> yeah. um but see, so you, you, you were you were steeped in it really, and yeah. i think and and as Graham said, comics certainly you know a lot of these things will come in online in the sixties you your, your spider man comics, your fantastic fours all of these sort of things were, were out there. Um, and it was just such an optimistic and upbeat science decade. You know, if you ignored what was going on in America with <laughs> all the riots and assassinations, <laughs> Vietnam wars and things, it was it was a great time to be young. And it, I've never known a decade that has been as scientifically focused and as upbeat as the 60s. And maybe it's because I was very young, Maybe it was because that time was so different to where we are now. I mean, you're a lot younger than us. What what do you feel? When when did you
0: get into this? That sounds really interesting, just going back on your point of growing up in the sixties. Um my parents also grew up in the sixties. So I've heard a few stories there. Um and it does sound like quite an interesting time to have been alive. I was born in nineteen ninety-two, so it's a little bit after. Um wow and um just so, a bit yeah <laughs> uh, and my brother was born in uh 79 so i grew up with a lot of the comic booky sort of things with him as well so it's kind of a three generation thing almost with us so it's my dad my older brother and then me so yeah i used to watch like x-men on tv so that got me into sort of like the comic book stuff the uh that was like the animated series um
1: yeah, one of the best one of the best yeah it
0: was, it was um yeah i really enjoyed that and um i quite liked batman as well my sci-fi introduction really is more down the comic book route but not so much reading more on the television i think the comic book interest in that came um as i got a little bit older that's my basis for my intro to sci-fi um so that would have been yeah mid 90s for me
1: yeah. The other amazing thing about the, the 60s, if you were a sci-fi fan at the time, is you could get so many books in the local public library, sci-fi books. They had really taken off. There's, um, there's a golden age uh, of uh, sci-fi books. Um, and you could get people like, you know, Isaac Asimov and uh, Alfred Bessler and James Blish and uh, Lee Brackett, who, who actually worked on The Empire Strikes Back. She wrote the, And they were all big uh, books at the time, Ray Bradbury and Lee Brackett. Hang on a
2: minute. Hang on. Lee Brackett was a sci-fi writer.
1: Yeah, she wrote sci-fi, yeah. She's for, she's one of the golden age sci-fi writers. She yeah. wrote
2: the she, script for El Dorado. Remember when we covered all yes.
1: that? Yeah, she wrote the script for El Dorado. She was a big sci-fi girl in the nineteen fifties, Jeff. I did not know that. Um, <laughs> you you were probably a bit old then. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Past my prime.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, she was and, – and all of those books, they were handed around at home a lot. I remember my parents reading uh, John Wyndham, a uh, great British uh, sci-fi writer who did The Day of the Triffids Love and The Midwich Cuckoos. Uh, they got filmed twice, didn't they, as Village of
2: the Damned? Midwitch Midwich has been filmed twice as Village of the Damned, Day of the Triffids been filmed numerous times. Yeah. You've got um, – <sighs> Chalky's been film- done for TV, but never been filmed as such. Cracking wakes. they did a brilliant radio uh, show on that. Yeah.
1: All great stuff. And then later, when you know, because you don't like to read all the stuff your parents give you, I started, started to branch off on my own reading a lot of Philip K. Dick, uh, the guy behind oh, hundreds Runner. of films. Blade Runner's Total Recall, uh, Minority Report, Scanner Darkly. Oh, uh, brilliant. Uh, the, adju- the Adjustment Bureau and The Man in the High Castle. All oh, right. Which have become sci fi classics now. But when I was reading him back in the late 60s, early 70s, yeah, he was quite radical then. And then, of course, Arthur C. Clarke uh, with, you know, things like 2001, <sighs> Rendezvous with Rama, Fountains of Paradise, all those sorts of incredible. So, yeah, I read a, a huge amount of books um, because there was basically bugger all on TV in the 60s. We had three channels. I think uh in the 60s on TV and that was it.
0: That's it. So no that you Yeah, you, know, you get hundreds of channels. People exactly. now don't um they don't think back to how yeah. you've had very little and you had to use the well you could still use a book for your imagination now but I imagine that your imagination around world if you're reading all of those sci-fi books.
1: Yeah and um and of course some of the classics like the Lord of the Rings reading then as well. So yeah, it jumped all over the place from fantasy, high fantasy to uh, sci-fi, but I've definitely always preferred this genre of fiction and movies, you know, so. And there's been some great movies that come out of it. Oh, incredible movies. Yeah. I, I mean, the the interesting thing was it, and I started off by saying I was abused on the train by a religious nut telling me to stop reading Isaac Asimov, but sci-fi was really looked down on by the snobby establishment of the time. You know, they they thought it was, you know, it had started in Pulp Fiction and it was still Pulp Fiction. They didn't see any merit in it at all. And yet they were missing all these great stories. Obviously, today it's changed and people actually see that, oh, sci-fi has some interesting things to say. But back then, you know, why are you reading that? You know, that rubbish would, is what most people would say. Why don't you read a proper book?
0: Yeah, Whatever can, the hell that is. I can imagine people having that sort of attitude Yeah, in that era, definitely. But like from that generation of older people back then. Yeah, I've, oh, heard, yeah, different, I've heard different stories. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and, and a lot of people will go, even today, you know, oh, peers of my age group will go, well, I'm not interested in that. That's not proper fiction, is it? Uh, so, what makes it proper by setting it in Basildon? Then, you know, why, why is that different from setting it on Mars? Uh, you know, I just don't get it.
0: No, oh, I think you've made a you've made a great point, and I'm I'm definitely on your side um, with that one. <laughs> um, moving on, so I've uh, asked you to to pick out a few of your favourites from your childhood, and if we start with the ones from the '60s. Jeff, do you mind giving me your first pick from the sixties? No, yeah, mine would be quite a mass in the pit. Oh, so, great! great um, have you seen it, Rich? Yeah. Um, I got to confess, I haven't. <laughs> okay, um, it's so, one I'm, I have come across, but um, right. yeah, I I'm not sure where to view it. To be honest, because I I did check it out recently if it was on DVD and I couldn't find it. Okay. But, um, if you can uh, recommend anywhere,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll give you a little bit of Quatermass history. So it was created by a great science fiction writer called Nigel Neal. Dabbled in horror as well. Is he's the guy that created the Daleks, isn't he, Graham? Mm, yes. So, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, he he knows the stuff. And in the fifties, as TV was starting up, the BBC was getting underway, and he created um, Quatermass at uh, the first series, and then Quatermass Two. And then the third and final series, which aired on BBC in 58, was Quatermass in the Pit. Now, in America at that time, you had a lot of these, you know, films like Roger Corman was getting into this fear of nuclear annihilation. And the British were a little bit more sort of intellectual in their fears. So, Quatermass, the first film, dealt with the fear of going into space and sending men into space and what could happen. The second film, um, dealt with these strange government buildings that were coming up all over the country again, sort of anti you know nuclear protection, supposedly we never anybody was ever quite sure but that's what what was going on in these buildings is the fear of two well quake mass and the pit, which was a series in fifty eight and then made this film in sixty eight is about the finding of a spaceship. Uh, uh, under one of the London Underground uh, stations. I think it's Hobbs End. I feel it's Hobbs End, yeah. Yes. And um, it's what happens when they find it. And, of course, there's still power attached to the spaceship, although the aliens are long dead. And as they dig into this, they find that the beginnings of our civilization came from what these aliens had done to us um so it's it's you know quite an epic theme and this fear of that we had about you know if there were aliens out there had they been to earth but also the creation you you could see it it's it's a hammer movie right so let's just knock this on the head straight away and say it is a hammer movie it's designed to scare but it has a lot of great science fiction ideas in there but underneath of that, what Neil was writing about was things like, how did our cultures form? How did our religions form? And this film sort of threw a few of these ideas into the science fiction element of what was connected to the spaceship that was found underground. And uh, it's it's just a tremendous... I mean, it's a Hot Hammer movie, but it's done with such style. And Nigel Neil said, you know, of... The films made of his work. This was his particular favourite, and it's not hard to see why. Rattles along at a fair pace. Quite a mass in this was an actor called Andrew Keir, not Brian Donnelly, who did the first two films. Who apparently was pissed all the time he was on set. Allegedly, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think
1: he's. I think he's dead now. We can we well, take yeah, the allegedly yeah,
2: well, out. <laughs> Nigel Neal and hated it, and he said, "You know, why have we got a hack third-rate American?" actor coming over doing this and, and with Kia they got a I think he's a Scottish actor so yeah. and, and he fitted in well. But it it's just the start the style of it as well. It's the other two films are black and white, this film's colour, a very lurid colour as well, which which um just plays into primal fears as as it goes. So it works as science fiction and it works as horror. What more do you want? I think it's great. Yeah.
0: your thoughts on that one graham yep i'd absolutely
1: concur with that one yeah it's a great film i haven't seen it in about 30 years but it's definitely on my rewatch list and um yeah now you've mentioned it i'm gonna shift it up the list i think it was i remember watching it late one night and it was just tremendous scary stuff but great themes and ideas behind it
2: yeah yeah, and it, there was a lot of films at that time, and you're going to pick up on one in a minute that exact add exactly the same thing about the dawn of man, but told from a completely different way that uh, this film did.
0: Yeah, um, you've definitely sold that one to me, Jeff. Um, like I said, I did want to see it beforehand, but it sounds really interesting. I'm surprised in my generation that it's not being sort of picked up on a little bit more. But I don't know if that is hard to is – it, is it hard to get hold of that one? Or?
2: I don't know. I'll have a check where, where it is. But but it's interesting you say it's hard to get hold of because when it opened in America, they had never shown the first two Quatermass films, despite having an American actor in the first two films. They never showed it over there. Okay. So when this film came out, to call it Quatermass in the Pit, would have that title had no meaning in America. So they changed the title to Five Million Miles to Earth. So You might, might find
0: it under that. might
2: find it under that
0: title. <laughs> yeah, no, that wouldn't surprise me. Thank you for that one. Um, and then moving on to another film in the 60s. Graham, would you like to share yours with us? Well, I'm going full-on
1: epic. Yeah, mine's 2001, A Space Odyssey from 1968. That's Same year. 50, 52 years ago. Yeah, it's um, this based on a... Uh, a screenplay by Arthur C. Clarke, who I mentioned earlier, and it comes from a book he wrote for a BBC competition called *The Sentinel*. He wrote that back in 1948. And 2001: A Space Odyssey was a Stanley Kubrick film, and as we all know, Kubrick is a legend, despite what Jeff will say. Oh, yeah, um, and we'll
2: touch on that in a minute.
1: <laughs> I went to see this. I went to see this when I was 11 years old. In the Odeon in Belfast. And it was to me the most grown up science fiction I had ever seen at that time. It was Kubrick pulling out all the stops and pushing everything up to 11. It was filmed in 70 millimeter super Panasonic with incredible practical effects. No CGI in those days. A stellar, pardon the pun, uh, soundtrack from the, uh, and a third act. Which was a psychedelic acid trip. Barking mad. I was 11 years old and my Uh, mind uh, was
2: blown. (laughs) There's no way at 11 you could have understood that film. I
1: didn't.
2: I didn't. Okay, that's mine then.
1: I didn't understand a word of it. I mean, but this is the power of cinema. I was in space. I was interacting with an evil AI and an unknowable alien presence. And this is just, you know, at that age, you're just completely transported. And when I say grown up, you go in to see a science fiction film and the first thing is it's set two million years ago. And you think, what? What? What's going on here? And it's for the first 20 minutes, it's a bunch of proto-humans discovering weapons and you think where's the where's the spaceship scene you know uh, the day the earth stood still and forbidden planets there had to be robots and spaceships in it you know if it was a sci-fi film and then with one of the best scene transitions ever in the history of cinema it changes into a full-on sci-fi epic with the bone that the uh the proto-humans using to bash a uh an animal skull turning into a spaceship it's just brilliant and then you're off on a trip across the moon across the depths of space towards jupiter it's just fantastic absolutely fantastic and it's it's a hypnotic perfect uh, Kubrick movie. You know, as a director who's famous for his lack of emotional engagement with his actors, this was his film because the principal character is a disembodied computer voice and the opening scene's got these primitives who don't speak, so you didn't have to have any emotional involvement with most of these people. And the last third, as I said, the third act is just a complete psychedelic trip. So, yeah, it was fantastic. And I was completely gobsmacked when i went out and i've watched it about 10 times since and i still have a great fondness for this film
2: yeah but at least you know what it means now um, <laughs> sort of sort of no 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 no
0: jeff what's your thoughts on this one mate
2: it's yeah i mean that whole business well firstly it's kubrick so let's start there yeah <laughs> as emotional as this desk i've currently got my microphone on um, uh, yeah. so there's your first <laughs> that problem.
1: desk's probably a bit more emotional yeah
2: Yeah. They, yeah as you said the, yeah, the main emotional character in it is a computer's voice yeah um, and then now let, let's just cut straight to the chase shall we let's fly a helicopter over Scotland and screw about with a negative and they're alien <laughs> <Adrian> worlds excellent
0: <laughs> have you seen this Rich by the way I have seen this one actually Um, I've only seen it once So I've not seen it the 11 times yet. Um, (laughs) But, um, yeah, I watched the intro uh, during film studies. And, um, yeah, I thought I could sort of see it was a different sci-fi film to what I'd normally have watched. Um, And then I think I bought the DVD pretty much straight after because I was just curious. And I'd heard a lot about it, and it was just one I kept meaning to see but hadn't. And I finally watched it, and I think you've hit the nail on the head with um, acid trip, really. Um, <laughs> well, is, it is I think I need to see it again. Now I know what I'm like, a hundred percent getting with it. And um, but I didn't, um, I didn't dislike it. But yeah, I definitely need to give it a second watch. A, I a lot of
1: people do drugs through during
0: yeah, the uh, yeah. third one. Sir Christopher Fra- <laughs> Professor
2: Sir Christopher Fralin, uh said when he saw it when it first came out and it was in London, they were passing a joint up and down the line uh, as they as they were going through the Stargate. Um, it's, it, I don't know. It, it just, well, I don't know. I, I, I mean, for the first two thirds, it's brilliant. There's no question about it. And I think as it gets to Jupiter, it's good. And as they go through the Stargate, it just becomes more and more convoluted. And I can put up with the ideas and I understand, you know, the whole thing about evolution that if they don't move man on to another level, man is going to destroy himself. So if they don't do that, but it's that Stargate just, you know, why don't we do a director's cut, take that out and put in some CGI? Graham, what do you think? Good idea?
1: <laughs> you want to paint a mustache on the Mona Lisa. That's I really where what you're going with that, you know
2: Jeff. I was surprised
0: how small that painting was, anyway. So. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that as well, actually. And I went to the museum. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: um,
1: <laughs> God. I'm surrounded by philistines. Yeah, yeah I, look, although although you should I should be
2: thought, lucky I went to France in the first place. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: 2010, uh, the follow-up was also a good movie. I like the that. Year We Make Contact. Yeah. yeah, and there's two more in the series. There's Odyssey Three, which is 2061, and then there's 3001, the Final Odyssey,
2: which so, they were going to combine and film as a sequel, starring Tom Hanks, at one point.
1: Yes, Bakker, he wow. beat me to my little. Fire oh, fire sorry, door.
2: mate.
1: There you go. Okay, no problem. But yeah, um, I thought yeah, two thousand and one was a standalone masterpiece. Two thousand and ten was a good film, and oh, they I should expect, do the other yeah. two. They should do the other
2: two, and at least it makes sense. Uh, <laughs> oh but it,
1: but the the um, Odyssey two was uh, eighty two,
2: wasn't it, Jeff? The, 1982. Yeah, and the
1: film. So was it's very political. It's very political. So it's well, sort of that, the Russians and the Americans in space. Really.
2: But, but so is 2001. You've got the whole yeah, thing it, of, you know, each one of them have got their moon bases and each one is trying to sort of um, figure out what the other's up to up there. Then nobody, nobody trusts them. And that's that point with, as you say, about that famous cut, it throws the bone up into the air, the first weapon, and it transforms into a nuclear orbiting platform, the latest yeah. weapon which I think is, and and it just shows, this is what Kubrick is saying, is mankind will take over the world through violence, but they must come to a point where that violence stops or it has to destroy itself.
0: I can't believe that it was 1968 when I was um, researching it a little bit.
1: It's light years ahead of its time. (laughs) It took four
0: years years to make. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, That's even more impressive. Um. Yeah. No, I was surprised at that one, but yeah, I think it's definitely really well done, and um, it is on my rewatch list, so I'll get round to that. One
2: thing I really like about it is there's no noise in space, and it plays that. But see, this is the thing I'm in two minds about on this film. I, obviously, I've said my bit on the last two, but the other thing is the music. So Kubrick had brought in Alex North, or the studio had insisted it had to have a score, so they brought in Alex North who had previously worked with Kubrick on Spartacus and North started writing the music. He wrote music for the first half of the film and he could tell, you know, Kubrick Kubrick had a a way he didn't want to get away from the temp track. So for example, the uh, Strauss's blue Danube, uh, North wrote something based on that theme for that moment going into space. And he left the project and the first he knew that none of his music was used uh, was when he went to see the film in the premiere sat there and there's nothing of his score whatsoever no it's, it's all
1: yeah it's all in the bin yeah,
2: yeah and it's thankfully it's now been rescued um there's two versions of it goldsmith jerry goldsmith had um did a special concert of the music and a special recording and now they've finally released the original tapes and North score and some of it is really good i I will be honest. I can't ever listen to the Blue Danube without thinking of that the spaceship. Mm-hmm. Um, so you yeah, know what Q, some of Kubrick's choices clearly are powerful because they've stayed
0: with me all my life. brilliant yep, yep. moving on now to the next decade then um, the 1970s um, can we start with? The earlier one, which I think is your choice, Chia. Yeah. So my choice for,
2: and and to be fair, if I'd not chosen this one, I would have chosen the one that Graham's going to talk about in a bit because that would have been, that was, I think, the ultimate science fiction film of the 1970s. And science fiction in the 1970s was really interesting. You've got 1976 and before and after. And the reason you split it like that is... Everything 76 and before is negative about the future. Everything after when Star Wars technically comes along in May 77 um, is all positive. No more was, was there um, dystopian science fiction films being made. Uh, that didn't come back until the 80s. And what was interesting is there's not a great deal of money in the early science fiction films. There's a huge amount of money in what came after when it became more positive. So my choice was from the early 1970s, because I like to be miserable. (laughs) And I chose The Amiga Man. Uh, It's a version of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, uh, which is a book that, again, like Quatermass in the Pit, borders that thin line between horror and science fiction, in that the book I am legend is about the last man standing in a world full of vampires or as we like to call it these days, the Tory party conference.
1: No. And,
2: <laughs> and um, he, in, in what they did with the Amiga man, Charlton Heston is they made it uh, a, a plague that came across the world following a war between Russia and China. So it came out of China. How prescient is that? Eh?
1: <laughs> and, uh, it, it, it turned... One of Donald Trump's favourite films. That well, well, actually, it,
2: it turned anybody that survived the the initial plague into right-wing zealots. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it became the Republican Party. Um, and they were trying to kill Heston, who although he was NRA because there's not a scene. I don't think there's a scene in this film where he doesn't have a gun in his hand. I can't think of any. There's very few. Anyway, so he's, so, you know, he's there supporting the NRA, but he's fighting the right wing nutcases who have become essentially religious zealots. And the leader of which is a guy who used to be a newscaster, probably for the 1970s equivalent of Fox news and they're trying to destroy him because he's against what they stand for and during the course of the film. So, again, he believes he's the last man left alive, um, and he's hunting these people down and killing them when he can because they can't come out at night because the plague has made them um, all white. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, he's fighting them, and then, of course, he finds – people that are alive. And what they find is with the plague is when you reach a certain age, you start to turn into one of these albino right-wing nutcases. <laughs> um, and, and what was interesting, again, picking up that colour thing, is the first person he sees is Rosalind Cash, who's a black actress. And it's never mentioned in the film that here's this white guy, Charlton Heston, who's an icon of a film star and a black woman it, nobody picks up on it because there's no need to you know when and it shows the the complete futility of racism because when it comes down to the so few of you left who cares what color you are unless you're extreme white right wing trying to kill everybody but so so it's never mentioned i i thought that was um a really intriguing part about it so and of course, then it goes on to get in the, the serum, which hopefully will save the human race. And one thing I'll pick up on in The Omega Man, very much like Quite a Mass in the Pit, is both films end with Christ-like sacrifices of somebody dying in an extreme way, but to save the rest of humanity. So, uh, yeah, so science fiction and religion, I've... If you follow me, you get the whole package
1: <laughs> and <laughs> except except that in the Omega Man, he actually does die in a Christ life, so he's actually crucified,
2: yeah
1: at the end. Sorry, massive spoiler alert,
2: there. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah for anybody that's never seen it, yeah, uh, what are
1: you doing listening to this podcast if you haven't seen that, yeah,
2: although to show it was the end of the world, he dies in a fountain, he's been speared. And that fountain was later rebuilt up as the fountain that's used in the beginning of Friends. So the world has ended.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no! What a terrible end for, <laughs> for that fountain, really.
0: <laughs> um, are you a are you a fan of this one, Graham? Yeah, huge
1: fan. You are. Yeah, huge fan. Yeah. I saw this with a bunch of mates late one night and um yeah loved it and watched it a couple of times since yeah it's it's great it is i am legend i mean um that they have been making that film uh, films of i am legend since the early 50s um that early you know, 60s
2: 64 first one last man on earth
1: was Surprise. Uh, Vincent Price, yes, yeah. So they've been trying and trying to to, to to get this spot on. And then what's his name? Will Smith had a go at it. Oh,
2: yeah, that's was pretty terrible. awful. Uh, and I found another one in 2007 called I Am Amiga, which I didn't know anything about till I was doing some uh, reading for, the, for this earlier today.
1: You're not going to tell me it's porn now, are you? No,
2: no, 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 no. no. It's crap. It's crap, right? but it's not porn. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, but, yeah.
1: but, but no, my- I've, I love it. I love it. It's great, great um, idea. Great. It's based on a great, great book, which has a incredible twist yeah, at the end. The book, the end of the book, is a million times better than anything they've ever filmed.
2: Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the the book was also the basis for Romero's Night of the Living Dead trilogy. Mm. And I think that is that, to me, is the best film version of it because you've almost, with the exception of two, Dawn of the Dead, you almost get a sacrifice at the end of each film, pretty much like uh, Neville in the book. Uh, But uh, definitely in one, definitely in one. But, uh, yeah, Romero knew how to deal with the themes of the book without actually making the book, because to be fair, he had no money to buy any copyright anyway.
1: No. But the book has got a great twist, and then another twist at the end, and you think, oh, oh, right, did not see that coming at all. Yeah.
0: But we'll, we'll not spoil the book, but we've just spoiled the Omega Man for anybody. <laughs> yeah, um, I definitely think I'd like to give the book a read. Um, yeah, the, on that the, basis. And
1: it, then it's, it's a it's a nineteen fifties book, so it's like a hundred and forty pages,
0: you know. You, oh, right. you could read it in a day.
2: Yeah. I did. It's one yeah. of the few books I ever read in one sitting. Yeah.
0: So- yeah, no, I'll definitely give it a go. Um trouble is I've got a massive confession to make here, guys. Um mm-hmm. I've seen the Vincent Price Last Man on Earth. Yeah. And I've also seen I Am Legend. But I haven't actually seen the Omega Man. yeah you're saving the best till last Right. yeah exactly third time's the charm mate it's uh yeah it's one that's escaped me and i now i think i'm my film selections widened a lot more and i'm definitely up for giving it a go um before you guys were talking about it but even after that it's made me want to watch it even more so i definitely that's bumped up my list that one so um i'll watch it as soon as i can a lot, yeah. of the and you get, you'll
1: sh- get all the references as well. You know, yeah. you will get all the the nuances and the references, and oh yeah, I can see where that's going and why he did that.
2: Yeah, it's and and the other thing with it is there was no CGI, obviously, back in the seventies, yeah. so they had to film a lot of the wide angle, uh, the the wide shots, early morning, and if you look very carefully in the background, you can see sort of cars moving along roads. <laughs> 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 Yeah, they
0: cgi those in, yeah. Yeah, they
2: CGI'd them in, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, on to our next um, 70s pick, and this one's from you, Graham. This is Steven Spielberg's The Close Encounters of the Third Kind
1: from 1977, 43 years old, God and this tells the story of uh, Roy Neary. I think his name is Richard Dreyfuss. Roy, Roy Neary, it, yeah. Neary. Uh, he's an everyday blue collar worker in uh, Indiana. And his life changes uh, one evening when he encounters an unidentified flying object. And he just gets absolutely obsessed with this thing. And it takes over his whole life. And it, and again, like 2001, this film is not what you expect. You go in and you think, oh, it's going to be about UFOs. Right, here we go. And it doesn't. It starts in the middle of the desert with people running around looking at old aeroplanes. And then you get into the story. So it, it again, it sort of subverts your, uh, your idea of what a sci-fi film is because most of the first act is taken up with scientists running around the earth, finding out about these strange notes, you know, musical notes that seem to mean things and that only become apparent in the, uh, towards the end of the film. Again, sorry to repeat myself, mesmerizing effect, a total assault on the senses. And from the very first encounter, where Dreyfus encounters the very first uh, UFO, it was, in, for the time, it was like, I've never seen anything like this. This UFO's right above him, and it was just incredible. And then there's chases with UFOs, and of course Spielberg can do chase scenes like nobody else, and it was fantastic. And then at the end, and Jeff and I have talked hours about the end of this film (laughs) as true (laughs) film nerds can get a few beers talk about the end of Close Encounters when I saw this in the cinema it was quite full and there were I'd say you know a few empty seats but everybody in this cinema at the last scene where the spaceship comes over the devil's tower it was huge and everybody's head started to move backwards from the screen as you thought this is never going to fit over the top, this is too big and it was almost like a mass religious experience in the cinema (laughs) You know, and for an atheist to say that, that's pretty impressive but yeah, it was so unbelievable we'd never seen anything like it and then, you know, people walking under the spaceship as it hovered and it was just mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing and i had to go and see it again the next day it was that good i went and saw it twice nice. so yeah a fantastic absolutely unbelievable film for the time now they could do it in five minutes or you know on their iphone the special effects but then this was just groundbreaking absolutely groundbreaking so yeah so it goes from a close encounter of the third kind which is seeing a ufo to the second kind which is seeing aliens to the first kind which is meeting aliens and that's the sequence of the film and it's just brilliant absolutely
0: brilliant yeah that is um that is a good one um i've seen that it's been a few years now but um it's another one i'd happily revisit um and i was hoping during
1: the current pandemic, that when they were trying to get classics in the cinema, that they would do that one because on IMAX that would be knockout that mm, final scene.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, definitely. I, yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, it, I think it's a work of genius. Um, the The one thing that frustrated me is Spielberg then had to tinker with the damn thing and add scenes in. He did a special edition in 1980. He's done other versions since where things have been added and dropped. um just go back to the original and leave it leave it as it is and, and Graham's right you, you see it for the first time you I knew bits and pieces about what was going on in the film. I knew that you know people had been talking about the ending of the film, and Gavin Miller, the critic at the time said it was like. religious experience and that's what graham said and i would agree you know it's this whole touching something bigger than you i think somebody else said at the time if there are aliens out there they would have had to have put this film out first as some pr before they ever came down (laughs) and it's just a a work of absolute genius you've got the everyman story that you know with richard Dreyfus, and why is he being driven to this And you've got the government story, which is almost the conspiracy thing that's going on in the background. What are they up to? What are these messages? And when you get to the end, things to look out for is when the spaceship's coming over. And it was a huge model. Uh, But if you look at it, and it was done by various model kits. And you can actually see an upside down uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 that were glued onto it. Um, that they are there. I've seen the R2-D2. I've never found the C-3PO. No,
1: me neither. I've seen Um, the R2-D2, yeah.
2: um, But when they land and people come out of the spaceship, humans, those are all famous people that, you know, people that have been caught up in UFO incidents and, and, Disappeared. So Amelia Earhart is there, for example. And and people
1: from the um, from the Bermuda Triangle as well. All yes. So the uh, yeah. So that uh, what was the name of that group? Yeah, Yeah, Flight Nineteen, Flight uh, Nineteen. Yeah, a a squadron of Grumman uh, TBM Avengers, which is strange because remember, I said my brother worked for an aerospace company. He works for Northrop Grumman, who made those planes back in the Second World War. Or after oh. the second one. Well, yeah. but so all they, of this is linked. This yeah. Is conspiracy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the reality is they didn't have enough fuel and they got lost. Exactly. Um, but yeah. Why, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? Uh, huh. So, yeah. You know, and the other thing I'd say on this is John Williams music score is tremendous. Mm. It's so powerful. Yeah. And, and you've got that opening where it's completely dark And it's just a tone that just comes through and builds and builds and builds. And suddenly it crescendos and there's white light because you're in the middle of a desert with a sandstorm going on around you. Everything about it is great. Spielberg considers it one of his lesser films these days. He he says he doesn't have the connection to this that he has to many of his other films because he's moved on in his life Um and I think that's a shame because I, it's a it's genuine work of art.
1: Yeah. And, again, seeing this as just, a, a you know, a 20-year-old, it was, you know, just the right time, and there was a lot of UFO conspiracies around at the time. There was a lot of, you know, uh, stuff about ancient visitations from aliens and all of that. So it just hit the zeitgeist at the right time. And, yeah, everything about it is just... It's a masterpiece in um, pacing and it's a masterpiece in, um, you know, moving from scene to scene and, you know, a stellar performance from Dreyfus. Yeah, and a great performance from Melinda Dillon as well. She is wonderful as the the mother who loses her child to the aliens. Just great stuff.
2: And Francois Truffaut. Francois
1: Truffaut being (laughs) very French, being very, very French in this (laughs) movie. Yeah.
2: So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's an amazing... But the whole thing... And again, we spoke about earlier about the 60s and the 60s being this time of, of wonderment and of hope and of, you know, living through science fiction in a way that we haven't done since. But 1978 in film, and I, I touched on this when we spoke on Marvel vs. DC, it, it it was an incredible time for cinema. So although star wars opened in america in may 78 it didn't come out it went to london on boxing day 77 in a couple of cinemas but you never really got a chance to see it until early february in fact technically half term february so so star wars had come out in early 78 for us this was again close encounters that opened in december in america We didn't get it till Easter, so that was April 78. So you had that, you know, and then at the end of the year, of course, you had Superman as well. Um, So the the whole thing, it it was, you know, blockbuster special in the cinema and and films that have stood the test of time. You don't often get that either. You know, you can have the big films, but a lot of them are are just candy. They just go straight through. But, But these films, you know, Star Wars, Your Close Encounters and Superman, um they they all stayed. And I think you know the impact of that came through on TV as well because Battlestar Galactica um was was created in its wake. Um Buck Rogers in the twenty fifth century. All of these science fiction shows were then strong on TV as well at that point. I'm not saying they're any good compared to the Battlestar Galactica that was remade a few years ago, which is um a very clever Thing. The the original, the only thing it did was upset the Russians um, <laughs> because they felt that uh, the Americans were were portraying them as the Cylons and putting a complaint about it. So <laughs> you said uh, you know, you, what, what can you do? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so so th- th- there was this huge wave of science fiction and, and Close Encounters, I think, is the pinnacle of what was going on at that time.
0: I'm a bit jealous of you having the um, you know, having that experience to speak of when you saw um a sci-fi film in the cinema because obviously you didn't get the quantity back then. Uh, whereas now I think obviously with the use of CGI as well, it's kind of overused, so you don't. I find you don't get many like classic sci-fi films coming up now. You know, there's a lot I think that will be when we're, if you're talking about in another forty years, they'll just be forgotten. But these ones Absolutely. that we've mentioned, I think, like, you know, in another 34 years, I still think, well, I'd like to hope they're still being talked about, things like 2001 and Close Encounters, and obviously Star Wars will be, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I hope so I really too, really yeah. That's yeah. to great, having an insight into your um, childhood experiences with sci-fi. But what
2: about yours then, Rich?
0: Come
1: on, what about you? What would you pick
0: what then from your era? From your from era? From my era, I... So I said no Star Wars, didn't I? Because that yeah. would have been like I'd have been growing up with you know Star Wars. I watched that a lot. Um, and then through the nineties, one of the earlier sci-fi films I watched was um, Signs, which is the M Night Shyamalan film. And I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, and he has done some pretty oh, yeah. weird ones. That um and it's got that one, Mel, it's one
2: of, Mel Gibson's that one in there. it has got the Mel in it.
1: Ah oh, bugger. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Yeah,
2: see so I was so about
1: you had, you had you had things like twelve monkeys, that's ninety five. Well,
2: yeah, or... yeah, so so he was so Rich was three then.
0: <laughs> you know? yeah. I thought I was a bit young for that one then. Um yeah. Um yeah, so I was about eleven probably when I saw signs and it, I it's that thing, maybe if I saw it now for the first time I wouldn't enjoy it quite as much, but I was just fascinated with the whole alien aspect of it and when they turn up and you see that one on the um they finally show one on the screen, I felt freaked out. The CGI now is probably terrible. But when I saw it then, I was quite creeped out by that and the prospect of aliens. Um minority report, that was another one. Um you mentioned that earlier. I saw that uh, a bit when I was young. But yeah, no, really like that's probably when the Tom Cruise better films. And um, there's also one I really liked with uh, Denzel Washington called Deja Vu. I don't know if any, either of you guys have seen that. Yeah, that's that's, yeah, I've seen it. that's the 40-minute yeah,
1: time top. travel thing, isn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah, I quite okay. like
0: that one. Made more um, sense than Tenant. Shush. <sighs> I've still yet to see Tenet, I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, so they they're sort of, yeah, so I'd have been sort of 10 to 15 around the time I saw those. So I think A lot of it, I was watching the sci-fi films of old, really, when I was young. Like, Star Wars, I must have been about four, I reckon, when I got into that because of my brother um, and my dad being into it. I was lucky to have those older generations introducing me to, you know, some of the older films, whereas some people I knew probably didn't have that luxury. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of, so 2010s would be really your... Yeah, so I well, point ten
0: I've been about eighteen, yeah. So, and this yeah, is what so I'm yeah. saying, I think. In more recent years, I think there's not been as great sci-fi films. There's Children and Men, that was um, brilliant masterpiece. I've uh, uh, only just
2: seen that in the last couple of months, and I would agree. Yeah. So, there's your question then, Rich. Of the twenty-first century, what are the great sci-fi films?
0: I'm I'm going to be a controversial one there because I think a lot of people would pick things like Interstellar and Arrival. And I just didn't enjoy those two.
2: I personally wouldn't have picked either of them. They're good films.
0: I'm not a massive fan of either of those. Um, So I guess in the last few years, sci-fi, I must be really picky with what I go for. I liked District 9. That's one that gets a bit of stick, but um, I really liked it. And um, it's, it's some of these films I've only seen once that I'm thinking of, and I'm thinking why, because I I, like, I love them, but I need to get around. I think the trouble is you're constantly watching new things. Sometimes you kind of forget to revisit some of the ones that you really like.
1: So, what about Moon or Edge uh, of
0: Tomorrow? Moon, thank you for mentioning that one, because I absolutely love that, and I think that's overlooked a little bit. Um, I watched it in uh, film studies, and I've... Sadly, I think I was one of the few people that really liked it and appreciated it. But I thought Sam Rockwell was really good in it. Um, when is when is he not? Yeah, is he not? He's yeah, just he's brilliant just, all the time. <laughs> yeah, he is. No, he's definitely one of my sort of favorite actors that you probably wouldn't say is A-list. Um, no. Yeah, Sunshine, I, I quite like that one as well. That's another one I think yeah. some people aren't massive on, but I, I thought that was a good one.
1: Gravity is also an excellent. Gravity, brilliant.
0: Yeah, you're Um, you're jogging my memory now, guys. Edge Uh, of tomorrow. Yeah, Edge of tomorrow. Tom Cruise. Cruise. Yeah, Yeah, that's another good Tom Cruise one, actually. Yeah, I love that.
2: I I would say Prometheus. Yeah, and that was met by a wall of silence. (laughs) No, yeah.
1: Yeah, I get those mixed up which one's the good one and which one's the crap one. This is this yeah. is the
2: one that raises all the questions. Yes, right. That's yeah. the good one,
0: yeah. yeah. I did like Prometheus actually. Um it would have been one of the first alien related films I'd have been able to see at the cinema. But um yeah, no, I did enjoy it. Inception. Yeah. That's good. It's that I found that mind blowing the first time I watched it. But um yeah, I think I that's that's a good one, a really good one. I'm a massive uh, DiCaprio fan. So, um, oh, right, okay. Yeah, I thought, um, yeah, I quite like that.
1: There's, that's about 10
0: years old now, I think, isn't it? But it doesn't feel like that long ago. I went to see it for the first time.
1: Uh, Inception 2010, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Wow. And, and, and there's a time travel film that worked,
2: unlike another one, more recent one, that didn't. Oh, uh, Looper.
1: Lo- oh, yes, Looper, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's uh, another one. Yeah,
1: well, that was when Bruce Willis actually gave a damn, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, yeah, when he wanted to give a performance or when it was <laughs> out of him. Yeah, um, but the whole thing made perfect sense. You know, it was time travel films are so difficult to do. I'm just looking down source code as well. We spoke about Moon. Oh yeah, no, no
0: I, I, I quite like Source Code as yeah, well. I yeah.
2: Prefer, yeah, I prefer Source Code to Moon personally, but uh, it's just me. And of course, Mad Max Fury Road.
1: Oh, God, yes.
0: Yeah, that's a good film.
1: Dystopian. Crazy.
0: It's pretty crazy, but, um, yeah, I I thought that was good. And Tom Hardy, again, he's another actor at the moment that's just pretty spot on with with his work.
2: I'd just like him to speak properly in a film where I can hear him and understand what he's saying. Um, Yeah, there, there have been some good ones.
0: Yeah, no, there's definitely a few in there. As I said, it's one of those things sometimes when you're on the spot with a question, you kind of read through and, yeah, you overlook some of them. But, yeah, no, there have been some good ones. Definitely. Yeah.
1: I was just trying to think. Um Unfortunately, a couple I do like, uh, The Matrix, that was 1999, so it's out, and Dark City, if you haven't seen that, that's a no,
0: great one. Well. I have seen that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Great. No, yeah, I've seen that one.
2: Which cut you've got the cinema one or the director's cut, which is completely different?
1: Oh, crikey. Yeah. I've seen both and um, I like both. <laughs> 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 just, just weird that way, yeah.
2: The thing is with the, the, the cinema version, it gives the game away straight away, whereas the director's cut doesn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Does V for Vendetta count as science fiction?
1: Sort of, yeah. Yeah. More yeah.
2: Probably. Definitely throw that in but I think we I feel we're living that at the moment.
1: <laughs> and um I'm just I'm desperately trying to think of any Japanese anime apart from uh, Ghost in the Shell but I can't. That's 95. but I can't think of anything that's this century that's been really good sci-fi wise.
2: Studio Ghibli kind of done thing. some interesting sci-fi oh, stuff. Well, Absolutely, you loved them, did not you?
1: Yeah, The Wandering Earth is bonkers. <laughs> Absolutely bonkers yeah <laughs> so so the, the the sun is shutting down so what are we gonna do yeah we're gonna attach large rockets to the earth and push it to another star because that'll work <laughs> yeah it's just but it's great fun just take your brain out at the start and just enjoy the visuals
0: yeah it and that's it i awesome. think as much as i like to watch a film where you've got to think about it sometimes you do need that sort of relief of a film where you don't have to um mm. You know, and you can you can just enjoy the effects. It depends on what, what mood you're in, really, doesn't it? So
1: yeah, and there's a great um, Chinese sci-fi writer and I've forgotten his name now and that's another joy of being born in the 50s Um but he did a great science fiction book called The Three Body Problem and they're going to make those into um uh, if not films for television they might come out in the cinema so I'm looking forward to that because I loved the books the books are okay. real hardcore sci-fi so something to look yeah. out for
0: Yeah, I I'll keep an eye out for that I've just thought of another sci-fi one actually I don't know if you guys saw it last year Ad Astra, it's sort of
2: you know, oh, and, uh, going yeah,
0: on yeah so you had to go. Yeah, you had to go. I,
2: and I'd rather it. watch oh. 2001, the last part. Yeah. Look over. <laughs> no, I, right I
0: didn't. I didn't say if I liked it or not. It's just my
2: opinion, just, even <laughs> though you didn't ask for it.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it, no, it, it was it's a bit, caused, um, bit like sort of heavy game, really, wasn't it?
2: it? Well, it's caused major issue on our podcast because graham and i both hate it um and elijah and phil phil foster both love it and it yeah when we were doing our end of year wrap-up last year this came up and we just had to rip the piss out of them basically (laughs) um
0: nice it was was
2: shocking everything (laughs) about it from a science point of view is wrong from an acting point of view, Tommy Lee Jones, I, I, I felt sure he was playing Harvey Two-Face again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it just was dreadful. Had they set that film on Earth and it had been a quest to find somebody, on Earth, it may well have worked. But the way they did it in space, it's just, no. And, uh, uh, and when they say? came out
1: with Moon Pirates, that's it. I
2: just lost it. Oh, Moon Pirates, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just, ah, oh, no, uh, no, the will to live was gone long before it. And um, just to sum it up, I went to see it on a, um, they do an old age pensioner thing, which is quite yeah. good because I haven't actually reached official pension age yet, I don't think. Uh,
0: sneaking but anyway, in
2: underage. I, I Sneak sneaked in up. underage, got my, uh, paid my three quid, got my cup of coffee and a biscuit down in Stroud. Sat there with this audience of people in watching this film, and this old woman behind me who didn't shut up for a fair bit of the film, but that didn't annoy me because the film was rubbish. <laughs> and um, at, towards the end, she was saying, "And I've missed my bus watching this shit." <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh yeah, we should, yeah, we should get her on the podcast.
2: What a, what a. Yeah. Right, what discovery. not another one? Yeah, can, um, you,
0: uh, can you find her and I can have her as my next <laughs> guest?
2: <laughs> oh, dear,
0: it was films
1: I've missed my bus for. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <There we go.
2: laughs> i tell you what. Oh, I haven't been to many of them, but old age people viewing of cinema is fantastic. <laughs> if people complain about having kids in there, you have OAPs in there, <laughs> okay. right. hey, nice. Oh. What were we talking about again? I have Uh, no
0: idea, I've lost it. Yeah, Yeah. Um, so we've mentioned um, some from more recent years.
2: Yeah, I think what's been a pleasure to talk about here is, yes, we're, we're looking back on our youth and what films influenced us in terms of science fiction growing up in the 60s and 70s. And you've always got this thing where people say, well, it's not the same as the old days, but we've come up with a whole list of names of films in the 21st century that is as good as yeah. anything that's come in the past. So I think science fiction cinema is alive and well, regardless of what age you are.
0: After going over, um, yeah, through the, through the different decades, I definitely agree with that statement.
1: The only thing I would challenge is science fiction books are about 100 times better. In the 21st century, than anything that was written in the previous centuries, because I just think science fiction has gone through such a renaissance in the 21st century. It's incredible. I sit and read books now, and I'm just absolutely captivated by the depth and thought processes put into the books. You know, I just reread a load of old sci fi books from the 1950s, and they're embarrassing. They really are embarrassing. <laughs> the ideas are good, but everything else that surrounds it is just total piffle. It <laughs> really is. It's shockingly bad. And I'm thinking, when I first read this, this was groundbreaking. What the hell happened? And <laughs> what the hell happened is that things just got cleverer.
0: You know, so yeah, well, most
1: actually,
0: of the sci-fi would have you wouldn't have known what was coming in like the future, would you? at that at that point no. when you're reading it, like you said, it was groundbreaking. So to you then, it was the equivalent. Yeah, yeah,
1: but yeah. you know, in no no science fiction books predicted mobile phones, you know, <laughs> or, or pocket computers as they're be better. Yeah, but yeah, it's just yeah, the the stuff that I'm reading now is just miles better than anything and and it's there are so many genres now there was only science fiction now the current book i'm reading is science fiction comedy and it's hysterical because i get all the references you know there's a there's a group of evil guys in the uh in this story who call themselves starfleet and that's just so hysterical really funny because they're nothing like starfleet but yeah it's just much much better
0: so it's been great talking to you guys about, um, you know, like I said the films uh, from your childhood. Um, obviously, without causing offence, it's a different, it's a completely different experience to what I would have had in my childhood. So um, it's been good to compare. Um, yeah, no, no thanks again. Expert.
2: You have that we talk to one another.
0: Well, I hey, hope you enjoyed that. Keep an eye out for our next episode.